This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. This is a follow-up episode. We now have Rick Sasso, the famous Rick Sasso from Indianapolis on with us. John Paul was able to recruit him in. Rick has been a stalwart of spine surgery, most notably for pushing the limits, if you will, on outpatient ambulatory spine surgery and proving that it's safe. Rick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great being here. Well, Rick, it's such a pleasure to have you on finally. And, um, you know, I've followed your papers, your career. You're so well known for all manner of surgeries, including especially cervical arthroplasty, complex cervical spine. uh, And in the orthopedic realm, you're highly respected for that. And you are in a very unique situation, I think. You guys uh, constructed, you show pictures of it, an amazing, beautiful hospital facility, which you own. And you've really taken ambulatory surgery to the next level. And for those listeners who don't get this, like there is this trend, there is a um, movement inside of the insurance industry, Medicare, to try to push surgery to outpatient settings. But let's go over the rationale first of why uh, you've moved in this direction, Rick. So tell us a little about the background, how you came to this, how you got started on this journey. Sure, absolutely. And I'll tell you, it started by patient demand. That that was exactly it, uh, Michael. Um, so in my training, um, one, two-level ACDFs were uh, kept in the hospital overnight. And the ne- in the, the following morning, we would round on them, and they would most of them say, why did I need to spend the night here? Everything's fine. And we would let them go home. Um, some of the staff I worked with used a drain. Some didn't. And when I started in practice, um, I was scratching my head really on why we were keeping these patients overnight. And and. When I got back to Indiana, I mean, there are most Hoosiers, they really don't want to spend uh, any time in a hospital. They want to get their problem uh, fixed, figured out, and, and go back home, actually get back to work. Um, and so really it was patient demand that, that said, my first patient I did um, as an outpatient ACDF said, you can do anything you want, Dr. Sasso, but I will not spend a night in the hospital. He's an Italian guy. I think he watched The Godfather too many times and saw all the bad things that can happen in a hospital. But but um, I told him, I said, well, I, you know, I, I've never done this truly as an outpatient, but I, I don't see why we can't do that. And from that time forward, all of my one and two level ACDFs, and that was back in 1994, um, I've done as, as an outpatient, except for very you know, very specific o- older patients, people who don't have someone to take care of them uh, that first night after surgery. So, so very specific, special things. But otherwise, yeah, they, they go home reliably in four hours. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, of Italian heritage myself, so there, it must be something in our blood. I, I think if someone tried to admit me to a hospital, I'd be the most ornery patient imaginable. I'd be wearing my own clothes and uh, kicking nurses out of the room trying to take my vitals at midnight. But um <laughs> Jokes aside, it, it really is extraordinary to, to, I mean, for me, trying to put myself in your position uh, those decades ago, hearing that it was the patients driving you to do it and not you being the chest beating surgeon saying, I can be more efficient, I can save money, uh, hearing that it really did come from the patients. So what was it like in your experience, starting from that first patient and then moving forward as your confidence grew and your courage to do more and more surgeries 
uh, A, the same procedure in more patients, but then B, expanding what procedures you would offer in an outpatient setting. What was it like for you psychologically as your confidence grew? Yeah, that's that's a great question. You know, we had in 1992 started doing microdiscectomies as, as an outpatient. So we had some history of doing outpatient spine surgery. ACDF in 94 was really sort, sort of a uh, I had not heard really of anybody doing outpatient, uh, truly outpatient ACDFs uh, in four hours. And what I did, and because, you know, I, even though Indianapolis is a big city, it's relatively a small community and, you know, everyone knows what's what's going on. And all my partners thought it was kind of crazy that I was letting my patients go home um, in, in four hours. But I did a, a very extensive review of the literature. I found that most problems, most complications occur within the first hour or two. Uh, after an ACDF, vast majority. So I doubled that to four hours. And that over the last 30 years has sort of been the standard. I think most people do keep their ACDFs for four hours just to make sure, I mean, the most um, dreaded complications is a retropharyngeal hematoma. And we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. But I had partners, my own partners that uh, were, in, and also I looked at drains. There's no data, no literature to support that drains do anything. Uh, although it's sort of like a religion, right? It's a ritual, uh, but putting <laughs> drains in for some people. But I looked at it, I was taught to put drains in as well, but there's no data to support using drains. It does not decrease the incidence of retropharyngeal hematomas. So I stopped using drains, uh, did it as an outpatient, and I followed all my patients very, very closely because I knew that, you know, this was important. And I, and I wanted to make sure that I was doing things safe. <laughs> or prospectively, I uh, looked at my first 600, 600, 700 patients, did as an outpatient reported that a number of years ago. And really, we had no retropharyngeal hematomas, had two epidural hematomas that presented within the first hour after their operation. And both of them did did fine. They they We took them back immediately and, and, and they did great. But, um, you know, that kind of was the, the, the start of it. And, and um, I think that uh, time and, and other authors and other surgeons have shown that um, patients do very well in an outpatient setting. And I will tell you that I know the safety issue is a concern, but I don't know of a safer place to do anterior cervical surgery than in our outpatient surgery center. We have, you know, within an earshot, you know, six or seven spine surgeons, four or five anesthesiologists, all the nurses know what to do, um, what to look for for retropharyngeal hematomes. We have a whole protocol set up, and I would encourage anyone to go to the CSRS website, csrs.org. We put together, when I was the president of CSRS, a video on just exactly this, the, you know, the protocol, step-by-step on what to do if you are concerned about an airway issue after anterior cervical spine surgery. And this has been implemented in a number of centers uh, around the world now. And um, I think it's very, very good. Uh, the, the worst place, actually, to have an anterior cervical spine surgery, maybe at a huge hospital, but people who don't know about anterior cervical surgery and retropharyngeal hematomas, how to assess them and how to take care of them. Well, that, that's a phenomenal resource. Thank you for pointing our listeners to that. Um, it, if I could tug on the thread of, of one of the points you made there, it, it seems to me that when, because you mentioned you started following your patients prospectively, you followed them very closely even though they were at home within that perioperative period. And thinking about the utility of drains, obviously the real thing that prevents these hematomas is good technique and good hemostasis. And so I wonder if as you're setting out 
to transition your practice to outpatient surgery. When you're doing the surgery, you know you're sending the patient home. And so do you think that there was some sort like a Hawthorne effect where you know you're being observed, so you behave in a different way, when in your mind you know this patient's going home versus this patient's going to be admitted with nurses checking on them in a highly monitored setting, do you think it changed the way you were doing the surgery? And as you continued down that road of outpatient surgery, outpatient ACDFs, do you think it made you a little bit more meticulous or you, you had more of an angel on your shoulder telling you to spend that extra few seconds being just perfect with your closure? Well, I think you have to be perfect. But I'm going to challenge something that you just said, a statement that you made that I'm going to challenge. And that is when patients stay in the hospital, they are monitored. What, what did you say? Monitored? Uh, closely monitored. Closely monitored. Okay. I'm going to tell you what usually happens, at least in our <laughs> hospital, our big quaternary care hospital, yeah. patients spend the night. They go to the corner room, which is the farthest away from the nurse station because everyone thinks that they're fine. There's no problems with them at all. Nurses round on them maybe eight or every 10 hours, depending on how long their shift is. Mm. Patients' family are thrown out at nine o'clock at, at night because um, that's the rules and they feel very uncomfortable there. And I will tell you, during the period of time that I was collecting my data, uh, there were actually two patients that expired. Uh, two of my partners, I had a lot of partners, uh, patients expired in the hospital after anterior cervical surgery because of an unrecognized retropharyngeal hematoma. Mm. The nurses, they, that was the exact scenario. They, they did not, they were not closely monitored. In fact, they were far from closely monitored. In fact, I think that my patients are more closely monitored by their family members. Again, I'm in Indiana. We, we usually have very close-knit families. We do, the pre, as, as you well know, preoperative uh, education, preoperative planning is so important, and expectations are everything. And so we talk to the family, talk to the patients about that first night, about the potential for retropharyngeal hematoma. And I can guarantee you that my patients' families are watching their family member, their loved one, way closer than the nurses are in a standard mm. uh, floor, for sure. Yeah, Rick, I would totally agree with everything you're saying. I think that for the people with the resources, you're 100% correct. I, I want to go back to this issue of economics, though, because there is this sort of pressure. Like when I want to do a surgery on a patient, frequently I'll get the insurance authorization. It'll say 24-hour stay or 23-hour stay, right? And that's what's authorized. And, and it's like a T10 to pelvis or something like that, right? <laughs> what is, right? So you've seen that. So what is what is the undercurrent of this? What is the motivator? What is the economic driver that's saying, you know, you you give great care at your center, but to push, let's say, folks like me in the university say, look, you got to do surgery as an outpatient. Well, that's that's crazy. Um, and, and I don't pretend to understand insurance companies. I know exactly what you're talking about, Michael. They... And you see, they're not. So what I do is I push back on them. I say, okay, so you want me to do this as outpatient? No, 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 not an outpatient. We want them to spend the night. I go, well, our, our outpatient surgery center really isn't set up. We can do them, but it's not set up to spend the night. If you want to spend the night, they should go in a hospital. They need to be in an inpatient. And so I really push back on these insurance companies because they're not, they're not, what, what you just said is not uh, scheduling them as an out. They want you they want you in this gray area where they can play games with the payment to the hospital. That's exactly what, what they're doing. 
not pay them on inpatient rates. They want to pay them on an outpatient rate. It's a game. So Dr. Sasso, um, at your group, Indiana Spine Group, in your center, am I correct that you own your surgery center? Yes. Oh, we've had a surgery center for almost 30 years. Yes. Yeah. So I, I talked about this a little bit for our listeners a few weeks ago. I had on uh, Dr. Shah Ahmad. He's a Rush graduate who's currently doing a spine fellowship there uh, at ISG with Dr. Sasso. And we talked a little bit about the decision-making process for where you book your surgeries and how you select patients to be done at the surgery center versus at the hospital. And so I wonder from, from your perspective, not as the guy training with you, but as the surgeon who actually owns the surgery center, um, you obviously have to explore all the different incentives with that. You've talked very much about the safety of your surgery center. And, and obviously, as the one controlling it, you know exactly how safe it is because you've designed it to be that way. Um, but there are different financial incentives for where you book the cases. So having having been doing it for this many years and now in the executive role that you have, both as the surgeon to your patient, but the business owner for the building where the surgery is done, how do you explore those different incentives and how do you make decisions on which patient goes to which building? Yeah, and I will tell you, it's, it's really more uh, uh, patient-centered in what the operation is. So I truly believe that outpatient surgery centers should be truly outpatient surgery centers where a patient does not spend the night. The patient mm -hmm. spends the night, and, and we'll, we'll talk about games and gaming the system uh, in just a moment, but um, most outpatient surgery centers are not set up, and ours certainly is not, to have a patient spend the night. Our nurses go home between 3 and 4 p.m., unless there's something unusual that, that occurs. Now, we start, our cases start at 6 in the morning, so they're there at 4 a.m. We have one shift. We run incredibly efficiently. Patients love it because the nurses love it. Nurses do one thing. Anesthesiologists do one thing. We do one thing, and we do it remarkably well. But mm -hmm. here's how, and this is what I tell my, especially my young guys, outpatient spine surgery should be done under two hours. The operation should take at really at the most 90 minutes. It should not take longer than two hours. There's all sorts of problems that occur just with the anesthesia in patients, especially patients are a little bit older in regards to urinary retention, in regards to nausea, in regards to all sorts of problems that occur when the operation takes longer than two hours. So that's number one, that the, the operation should be under uh, two hours. Second thing is should minimal blood loss, right? I mean, minimal blood loss. Um, 10, 20 cc blood loss for ACDF, same for our, our, our microdiscectomies. And the patient should reliably be able to go home within our, our anterior cervical operations go home in four hours, our lumbar decompressions go home in two hours. And, um, you know, again, we've looked at this very closely. Over 99% of our ACDFs go home in that, in that period of time. It's rare that they actually have to be admitted to, to a hospital, as do our lumbar decompressions. Um, so that's how I, uh, how I look at it. Now, I'm sure we'll talk about, and, and, and Mike's you know, done a lot in regards to other operations like lumbar fusions, A-lifts, T-lifts as an outpatient. I will tell you that I cannot reliably do those operations as an outpatient. Um, I think that, that the vast majority need at least an overnight stay in the hospital. And so I do those, those patients uh, in, in a hospital, in an inpatient setting. 
Yeah. So, so Rick, tell us more about what it took in the early days to do this, because you were a pioneer in this. Now it's become much more accepted. But when you first started doing this, I'm sure a lot of people felt like, why, why would you do this? Why are you doing this in this way? Is it safe? Right. Tell us about what it was like um, in the early days. So I took a lot of barbs, mainly from my partners, from my own partners who thought, you know, hey, you know, patients stay in the hospital, we'll put a drain in. And, you know, again, looking at the literature, I think, you know, we, we shouldn't be doing things just because that's the way that we were taught. And that's the way we've done things for years and years and years. We really should base what we do on science. And when, when I looked carefully at all the literature on anterior cervical operations, I, I, I found that, that there was no reason that we needed to keep them in the hospital. There's absolutely no reason. And so, and again, it was only patient demand. Patients wanted to go home um, that I started doing it. And then once I started doing it, it became, you know, very reliable. I mean, you know, as I said, we, I published my first six or 700 um, outpatient ACDFs. And, and it was a very, I mean, patients really enjoyed it. They wanted to go home. Now I'll tell you what, what I, what I do. And, and maybe there's a, a couple little tricks on this as well, but, um, nowadays it's really easy because, you know, our EMRs are kind of on our phone. So, so my, my nurse just automatically, uh, on the cases that I do that day, I have the patient's name, their operation, their phone number. And when I drive home, I, I call, I call my patient. All I need to do is hear their voice. If they have a normal voice, I feel great. Everything's good. Everything's fine. If, you know, if they don't have a normal voice, then, you know, uh, that's when I, I need to be a, l- a little concerned about it, but it, but it makes me, um, feel much uh, more at ease to be able to sleep at night when I, you know, talk, talk to my patient as I'm, as I'm driving home. So it's incredible to me to, to think about the sheer span of time since you first started doing this, as you said, in the early and mid 90s. And now here we sit in 2023. I, I wonder if as you look back, can you think of an inflection point, um, maybe for the, the field writ large? Obviously, you're involved in, in so many societies and you're, you've got your finger on the pulse of the nation. But maybe even just in your own practice, can you think about um, where along the course of your career there was an inflection point where instead of suffering the barbs and and uh, the criticisms of your partners, suddenly um, a- ambulatory spine surgery was not only something accepted, but sought out. And now you have people coming to you to learn how to do it safely and how to organize the practice. W- where do you think that switch flipped? So see, I'll tell you what's really interesting. And, and I think that this spans across a lot of different things that, that we do. Um, this really is regional. And I'll tell you, in, in Indianapolis, in Indianapolis, it is a standard for one level ACDFs to go home the same day. No, no matter what, what hospital, no, no matter what setting, that's the standard. Many meetings I go to, like you said, we go to a lot of meetings. There are other cities, there are other places where that is not the standard at all. In fact, it's it's looked at very, uh, very, very poorly. Uh, I will tell you. I mean, some very very good guys, great friends of mine, all their patients spend the night in the hospital, mm. and and that is sort of their 
you know, in their area, they say, well, we can't do it as an outpatient because everyone else keeps them in the hospital overnight. And if something would go wrong, we'd be, you know, we'd be in big trouble. So it's just kind of weird. It's, 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 I think it's very regional, very regional. So Rick, you, you've been on the cutting edge, as we've said, uh, this outpatient um, sort of issue that you're talking about. To me, I think I agree that ACDF, while it seems straightforward, it is a surgery that has to be done perfectly, which you do for people to leave the hospital safely. Yes. Um, you also push the limits on arthroplasty. So tell us a little bit about where Spine's headed next. What is the next giant frontier that you're going to conquer? <laughs> I'm getting a, too old, a little too old to conquer uh, frontiers. I, uh, that's for young guys like you, Mike. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, 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 um, I really enjoy what, what I'm doing. I really enjoy um, doing outpatient spine surgery, but I also enjoy doing, doing bigger cases in, in, in our hospital. I enjoy, uh, I will tell you, there is no better place to do spine surgery than in your own facility that you have complete control over who works there, who the anesthesiologists are, who the nurses are, what equipment to get. I mean, it is, it is such a joy and it, it, it makes, it makes it so much safer. You, you not, you're not worried about what traveling nurse is going to be in, in my operating room. What uh, anesthesiologist that, you know, may have just finished their training is going to be in my operating room. Who's, who's going to be taking care of my patients on the floor? Um, when you have complete control over all of that, all of the care of your patient, it, uh, it makes things really, really nice. Well, you know, Dr. Sasso, I think uh, we're on a brainwave because you, you perfectly just anticipated the question I wanted to ask you to wrap this up, which is about that whole side of your practice, uh, owning the practice. I, I think that if I put on my resident hat for a moment as the trainee in the room, we aren't really exposed to that side of surgery, certainly, but even just medicine writ large. Um, right. And there are so few physician-owned practices nationwide compared to hospital-based systems and these large groups where physicians are employed. So we so frequently have our guests on and maybe they direct a fellowship or um, they run a residency or they have uh, a a department and we say, make the case for X, Y, Z, make the case for going into functional neurosurgery, make the case for doing a fellowship here, but maybe make the case for physician owned practice. And, and you just very well laid out the, the power that you have. And, you know, surgeons, we like having power, sure. But as an extension of your clinical practice, controlling the facilities where you do the surgery, that really directly impacts the care you can give your patients. But maybe from the administrative side of things, from just what your day-to-day -day life is like at work. Make the case for trainees listening who have an interest in what your physician-owned practice is like. Yep. So again, this began, I didn't start out saying I need to build a spine hospital. It started with what's the best way to take care of my patient. And I'll tell you something very bad happened in, oh, what, how many, 13 years ago with the ACA, uh, the Obamacare legislation, when every large tax-exempt hospital in our city, it was a race for the bottom. They had the same consultants that came in and told them, you need to cut your overhead because the top line is not getting any bigger. You need to, uh, in order to keep your margins, you have to decrease your overhead. So 
I will tell you the big hospitals, when I started in practice in 1992, they were wonderful places to work. I loved working at all the big tax exempt facilities in our area. They, they were great. They had lots of nurses. They were incredibly um, good. And about 13 years ago, it all started down a really bad path. And it got to a point where I was apologizing to my patients for the first five minutes on rounds when I would go to the quaternary hospitals and tell them, I'm really sorry about what happened last night. Nurses didn't come talk to you. They didn't speak English. They, they treated you miserably. And, and in the ORs, they, they fired all the people with uh, corporate knowledge. We had, we had no idea it was in our surgical sets anymore. And so we had this group of patients that were done as an outpatient that loved their operations. They loved the whole, um, the, 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 everything that surrounded their care. And then I had this group of patients that were done as an inpatient that were miserable and they hated it. And really it came down to how can we get these patients, our inpatients, to have the same experience as our outpatients? And it came to one thing, and that was we have to control everything. We have to have the control. We have to build our own hospital. Um, Because of the ACA, though, um, that became difficult. And that's why physician-owned hospitals, you know, in the old days, physician-owned hospitals, there were a lot of them, a lot of cardiac hospitals, a lot of orthopedic hospitals. And the, the, the model back then was to build the hospital, see Medicare patients, build the pro forma for two, for two years, and then go to the commercial insurers. Commercial insurers would not give you a contract unless you had a pro forma, unless you were up and running. And so you would do that on your, on your Medicare patients. Well, the problem is with the ACA, we can't see Medicare patients. We, by law, we can't take care of Medicare patients. So um, I had to do the exact reverse. I had to go to the insurer and get a contract before I could even go to the bank to get a loan, before I could even think about digging a hole in the ground. I had to have a long-term contract with normal escalators um, with a big insurance company. Frankly, though, that was one of the easiest negotiations that I had because they they get it. They understand that competition is good. They understand that 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 having a monopoly or oligopoly with these huge monstrous healthcare um, uh, behemoths is is not good. And uh, they loved having uh, a uh, option a physician on hospital. Our and and the insurance company knows that. Our complication rate is way less. Our infection rate is way, way less. Our patient satisfaction rate is way, way higher. And, and patients love being treated at a physician in hospital. I mean, all the data supports that. Wow. Well, Dr. Sasso, uh, real privilege to have you on the show. I could sit here and pick your brain about these things all <laughs> night, but we got to respect your time. Um, really a, a pleasure and privilege to speak with you about this. I really look forward to speaking with you again. We'll have to have you back on the show. Uh, But for tonight, thank you for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast, sir. Thank you. Thanks, JP. Thanks, Mike. Super fun. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. 
Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.